True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. She's just fallen asleep when she hears it. It's a sound she's never heard before. And at first, she thinks it might just be the rain against the roof. It's been raining heavily for hours, but the sound is getting louder. Something is moving toward her, toward her house. She looks out the window, and the sight causes the breath to catch in her throat. It's already too late. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 85, The Mary Sprate Disaster. This episode is sponsored by Dialabed. If you're listening to this podcast in bed, you should know that the quality of each day is decided the night before. Sleep your way to a new and more vibrant you. Behind every mover and shaker, there is a perfect mattress. And Dialabed has your back, with South Africa's widest range of bed brands. Upgrade your bed today by visiting a Dialabed store or shopping online at dialabed.co.za. A huge thank you to Dialabed for supporting True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Melissa, Melissa Killian, Sean Stemmett, Ali Lucy, Maureen Incendiario, Margot Ferreira, Estelle Croy, Tash B, Charmaine Harris, Nicola Ruda, Michelle, Lynette Hanrahan, Talita Bale, Dragon Lady 13, Janita Robertson, Sonia Shavda, Melissa Fortane, Holly Heinzelman, Hayley McLaren, Janice, Zamalu Shaba, Gabs Mudley, Bontle Mudle, Natasha van Eerden, Leah, Carl Paxton, Tanya Young, Yvette King, Chantal G, Ivan Levenrad, Dan Henriksen, Tanya Jacobs, Leila Fakir, Charlene Carmichael, and Madeleine Kruger. Phew. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. You've seriously all shown up on Patreon this week, and I am immensely grateful because your contributions really do make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. In addition to the shout-out and monthly exclusive episode that Patreons get, I also now upload an ad-free version of every week's episode to Patreon. So if you prefer not to hear the ads, head over to Patreon and sign up for a minimum monthly contribution of just $1, which at the moment is about 16 rand. It's a pretty good deal. If you like discounts, because who doesn't, head over to King Online for your health and beauty needs, print crowd for all your printing requirements, and use the code TCSA10 at checkout for 10% discounts and support the show at the same time. And you can also get 10% off when you order from Wallpaper Online by using the code TRUECRIME at checkout. 
Other forms of support that make a huge difference include following the show on social media, inviting your friends, family, postman, hairdresser, and parole officer to listen, and leaving reviews on the podcast platform you use. This week's episode content is a little different from what I usually cover, as you can already see from the title. Every now and then, a mass casualty disaster strikes our country that leaves the community it hits, and often the rest of the country, reeling from the sheer devastation. Often these are natural disasters, and although occasionally better infrastructure may have saved lives, in the end you just can't fight Mother Nature in all her fury. It ends up being no one's fault, and just a pure tragedy. Today's case is not like that. It's a disaster, but it was entirely man-made in almost every way. And as the investigation would show, could definitely have been avoided. My sources for today's episode include an episode of Heiskenoord Varelevens dramas, several academic studies done on the event, and several media articles. So let's get into episode 85. The Mary Sprite Disaster. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Virginia is in the Free State Province of South Africa. It's a gold mining town located about 140 kilometers from Bloemfontein. Mary Sprite itself is a suburb of Virginia, but the suburb is actually built on the land that would give the entire town its name. In 1884, two railway surveyors from Virginia in the United States scratched the name of their home state on a rock near the farm Mary Sprite. Years later, when a railway siding was established at that exact spot, the railway crew needed to know what to call it, and seeing the name scratched into the rock nearby, figured that must be the name of the area, and it stuck. After gold was discovered in the area in 1949, a settlement sprung up on the banks of the Sand River, which would eventually become Virginia, and the land on which the Mary Sprite farm had been and the infamous Naming Rock, became a suburb called Mary Sprite. Gold mining in the Virginia area is predominantly done by a company called Harmony Gold. Harmony Gold was incorporated in August 1950, but it would only move into the Virginia area in the 1970s when it merged with Anglo-Val Mines, who'd been running mining operations in that area up until that point. By the time Harmony started building additional mining-related structures around Virginia, Mary Sprite was already well-established as a suburb. It had about 250 houses, which were predominantly occupied by families of miners working in the area. But as operations expanded, Harmony needed to build structures that would house the waste from their mining operations. So in 1978, the Harmony Gold 4A tailing complex was built, just 350 metres from the closest existing house in Marysprate. When gold is mined, there's a lot of rock and sand waste called tailings. This has been sifted and cleared for the presence of any gold, 
But those rocks and sand now have nowhere to go because they've been pulled out of a hole and, well, they can't go back in there because mining operations continue. So the world standard for this sort of waste has become to crush those tailings into a salt, as fine as talcum powder, and mix it with a bit of water to form a sludge, and then pump it into a prepared area. In the very early days of gold mining, labourers would dig holes to form these dams, but because the salt solidified so quickly, mine companies soon started skipping over the hole digging process and just used the tailings to create its own dam wall. So to start the 4A tailing complex, they would have pumped out a bit of tailing, pushed it with machinery into a wall formation, and waited for it to dry, and then continued that process until a circular wall had been built that could house the tailings. Ordinarily, there are two sections to a tailing complex like this, the day dam and the night dam. The sludge gets pumped under supervision into the day dam, and then it dries and drains are opened to release any excess water into the night dam. But when 4A was built, a water-accepting dam was not built alongside it. Instead, the water level was monitored, and when it became too high, a penstock or sluice was used to direct water out of 4A. The early days of the dam building already showed some difficulties. For some reason, the mine found that the silt that was being produced was not hardening enough to provide a 100% safe wall when solidified. So they built an additional buttress, or stone wall, to reinforce the northern side of the dam, which faced the houses. And for 20 or so years, this seemed to work pretty well. During the day, the tailings were pumped into the dam, and allowed to dry and settle, and then the water levels were managed manually. Although the structure belonged to Harmony Gold, and they used it for their purposes, the tailings dam itself was managed and maintained by a company called Fraser Alexander. The company was formed in 1912 by Fred and Fraser Alexander to provide services to gold miners who were, at that point, rather rudimentary individual gold panners, who owned their own claims. As gold and other mining exploded in South Africa, though, Fraser Alexander soon realised that their services were required on a far larger scale. They started building slime stands in 1946 on the West Rand, and the rest, as they say, is muddy history. Today, the company runs operations across the world in construction and mining services, and employs over 4,000 people. In the 90s, Fraser Alexander was tasked with maintaining Harmony Gold's 4A tailing complex on the edge of Mary Spratt. In March 1993, Fraser Alexander conducted an inspection of the tailings dam at Mary Spratt. It would later be acknowledged that this inspection had come as a result of three incidents which had taken place in a town called Cyplas in Valcom, also in the Free State. In Cyplas, the tailings dam there had ruptured its wall three times in one month. Luckily, homes were not built very close to those tailings dams, and the flow had stopped just 200 metres from the wall and was controlled. 
A report of the inspection at Mary Sprate in 1993 would later show that at this time they'd noticed a wet spot on the northern wall of the dam and acknowledged that seepage was occurring through the wall. A prior report had noted that Dam 4A had a freeboard of one metre. A freeboard in this context is the measurement of how much the dam can still fill with water before it gets to a dangerous capacity. The world standard for this freeboard measurement is half a metre. So you have to essentially be able to pump half a metre of water into the dam without it reaching a dangerous level. With 4A previously being at a one metre freeboard, things were looking good. The dam was well below its required capacity. But between that previous inspection and March 1993, something else had happened. The neighbouring dam, 4B, had breached its boundaries, and some of those tailings had seeped into 4A. In March 1993, when Fraser Alexander assessed the dam and noticed the wet spot on the northern wall, the freeboard on the dam was already just 300 millimetres. Fraser Alexander employees immediately issued a directive to Harmony Gold that they should cease use of the dam right away. It was not safe to add even a teaspoon of tailings into 4A. This warning should have been the beginning of a process of correcting the problems at the dam, but that didn't happen. No further action was taken by Fraser Alexander to attempt to bring the freeboard level back to acceptable standards, and Harmony Gold did not stop using the dam. Over the next year, Harmony Gold employees continued pumping tailings into Dam 4A. They manually removed water after the tailings had dried, which only served to maintain an already unacceptable freeboard level. The average rainfall in February in Virginia is 66 millimetres over about three days spread across the month. But on the evening of the 22nd of February 1994, the heavens opened and 50 millimetres of rain fell within just three hours in Marysprate. By 7pm that night, a resident reported a stream of water entering the suburb. Mine employees were immediately dispatched to check the tailings dam wall. One eyewitness said that they saw water coming over the top of the dam wall. When representatives from Harmony Gold and Fraser Alexander arrived at the dam wall at around 8.30pm, they found water licking at the top of the sluice that would usually be opened to manually release water. Several valves were loosened to allow for more water to flow out. At this point, the water was not a concern. They could release the water without significant flooding risk. What was a concern was what might happen if the water stayed in the dam. The technicians were still at the dam wall when, just past 9pm, they heard a loud bang and realised that it was too late. The northern wall at Dam 4A Tailings Complex had burst and mud and water were headed for the town. The first indication that some of the residents received that night that something was wrong 
was a loudspeaker on a municipal vehicle which attempted to drive through some of the streets to warn residents before the driver had to flee himself as the wall of mud approached. Some heard the warning, reinforce your homes and prepare for masses of water. And water did come, at least at first. Andres Fivers and his family, his wife, young son and daughter, had just bathed and changed into their pyjamas around 9.30pm that night. The family decided to watch some television before they went to bed, and this decision would save their lives. Andres' son called out to his father that there was water coming in under the door. Then the young boy opened the door and stood open-mouthed before slamming it shut and telling his father that there was something moving towards them. That something was a wall of mud several feet high. The water components of the dam had run out first, only slightly flooding the streets. But the mix of silt and water that followed was about to wreak complete devastation. When Andres Fivers saw what was headed for his home, he said that there was no time to do anything but grab his family and run out the back door. The Fivers family thought that they could outrun the mud, but as Andres glanced back and watched their entire house be demolished by the moving mass, he knew that there was no way they were going to outrun it. He and his family ran into the first house they could find and took shelter. Later on, when they returned to what was left of their home, they found that only their young daughter's bed was left completely untouched by the mud. If they had been asleep when the mud had come, only their daughter might have survived. The main bedroom and his son's bedroom were completely destroyed. While the houses closest to the wall had the water as a warning, those further into the suburb only knew something was wrong when they heard a rumbling. One man had just switched the kettle on to make a cup of coffee and was listening to it boil. At first, he thought there was something wrong with the kettle, but soon he realised the loud rumbling was coming from somewhere else. And then the mud arrived. For months after the incident, the man could not be in the same room as a boiling kettle without having a panic attack. While the wall of mud enveloped some houses, with others it lifted the very structures off their foundations and carried them until they crashed into other houses. One man looked out of his window and saw people floating past. He'd been trying to figure out how he was going to get his elderly and infirm mother out of the house, and then he understood that her best chance was to float on something. He told his mother to hold on to her mattress and pushed her out the window in the hope that she would make it to safety. It was all he could do in the minutes before the mud completely overwhelmed him. Many families were caught unaware, sleeping in their beds. One mother, who was three months pregnant, had been sleeping with her two-year-old daughter when the mud came. She tried to hold on to her child, and even to push her into a caravan where she might have had a chance of floating to safety, but she lost her grip on the girl, and her daughter was swept away. 
The child's body would only be found three weeks later, in a flay hundreds of meters away. The woman would discover that her husband had not even made it out of the house. He too was killed. Some were lucky. Two children found themselves lifted up by the mud and transplanted onto the roof of a nearby house. They stayed there for hours, feeling the house sway in the mud swirl, but unable to move until they were eventually airlifted from the roof. One man had been sleeping with his dog in bed and woke up to find himself floating on a river of mud. He and his dog survived by simply surfing along on their mattress until they were dropped off, still on the mattress, in a flay. Sixty-year-old Sarah de Meyer had been doing needlework in her lounge when she heard the rumbling. Fearing it was a flood, she ran up to the second story of her home, only to see that mud was already rushing past those windows, and on it were human beings. The lady recalled how she'd watched as a mother floated past with her infant child in her arms. Sarah had opened the window to try and throw a sheet to the woman to help her, but it was too short, and she had to watch as the woman and her child disappeared into the darkness. Darkness was all that filled Mary Sprite at that moment, because one of the first things the mud had taken out was the suburb's electrical substation. With the town plunged into darkness and a wall of dark silt powering through houses, residents recalled torchlights bobbing up and down as people tried to run, float and wade to safety. Fourteen-year-old Johanna Clausen had been asleep when the mud came. She hadn't stood a chance, and her body was found five days later under a bridge quite a distance from her home. Those who were lucky enough to escape relatively unscathed rushed to the local primary school. The school hall there was the emergency assembly point for the suburb, and to the credit of surrounding residents, volunteers had already started pouring in to care for the displaced. It soon became clear that the mud, which covered everyone and everything, held another danger. The tailings from the gold mining process contain acid. Those who survived but were covered in mud had to get it off them as soon as they could, as it would eat away at their skin. In the hours that followed as the mud stopped flowing, the defence force was brought in to try and help. In those early stages, there was really nothing that anyone could do but wait for daybreak. The entire town was plunged into darkness, and only survivors who were on the roofs or visible could be saved with helicopters. Almost the entire town was in their nightclothes, and it was cold. Hundreds of people sat shivering, sipping at warm soup provided by volunteers in complete shock. Those who were in the school hall were some of the lucky ones, though. Hundreds of people had to be transported to hospital with severe injuries. And at this point, if you'd been separated from a family member, finding them was almost impossible. After those in the hall had looked around to determine whether their missing loved ones were there or not, a list started to be compiled of the missing. In the days that followed, 
The first priority was to find anyone who might still be trapped in their homes, and then the body recoveries started. Much of what had gotten caught up in the mud wave had been swept through the suburb and down into the flay, so this is where operations began. Large tipper trucks rolled through Merrysprate, gathering up loads of mud and moving it back to the dam area. As this happened, a sad scene unfolded, as the families of the missing would solemnly follow the tipper trucks back and forth, watching as the mud spilled out from its belly, hoping to catch sight of a body. Other families searched nearby hospitals, hoping that their loved one had been admitted and was perhaps unconscious and unable to identify themselves. One young man, Bram van Sale, had been separated from his wife, Karen, in the mud. Bram and Karen had been married for just two months. He'd been injured and lay in a hospital bed, but watched for ambulances pulling up outside the hospital from his window. Each time an ambulance pulled in, he hobbled to the entrance, despite the nurses and doctors asking him not to. He needed to see if that ambulance, or maybe the next one, contained his wife. Sadly, Corin Fonsale had died in Mary Sprate, and her body would be recovered several days later. The shock that fell over the community in the wake of the disaster was palpable. Many residents didn't even know the tailings dam was there. Others, even men who'd been in the mining industry all their lives, had never even dreamed that such a thing could happen. People tried to make it back to where their homes had stood as soon as they could. The mud was still waist-deep, and everyone knew that there was a good chance they could step on a body. Most walked with long sticks, poking the mud in front of them to ensure that there was nothing under the surface before they stepped. Children were encouraged by volunteer psychologists to draw pictures to help them deal with the trauma they'd experienced. Many of those pictures depicted a layer of mud with bodies underneath. Many, many residents of Mary Sprite had lost everything they owned. What hadn't been crushed by the massive force of mud, which was powerful enough that it had bent cars around trees, was completely covered in the acidic slush, and almost nothing was salvageable. Many were also desperate to get back to their homes to see if they could find their pets, and to be honest, this is something I always think about when I consider a disaster like this, or having to evacuate your home. The father's family found two of their three cats in the house alive after the disaster. The third was sadly never seen again. They'd thought that their dog, a bull terrier, had been swept away, but 14 days after the incident, they found him at Virginia SPCA. Many other pet owners were not as lucky, and many looked as long and as hard for their missing pets as others did for their family members, because to them, they were family. A fund was set up for those who had lost their homes, loved ones and everything they owned. It would be some time before it would be known whether insurances would pay out for their losses, and in the meantime, community members were housed in a local hotel funded by the municipality. 
three weeks after the disaster, the last body was found. Two-year-old Lizka Pretorius, who'd been ripped from her pregnant mother's arms, was found wrapped around a tree. She was added to the final victim count. Seventeen people had died in Mary Sprite that night, and hundreds more had been injured. Although the whispers had already started in the hours after the disaster, with clean-up operations underway, the question was now being asked loudly, who, if anyone, was responsible for this? An inquiry team was set up, consisting of various experts in the fields of mining, weather, minerals and disaster management, and headed up by the Minister of Justice. The team would work hand-in-hand with the SAPS to figure out what had caused the 4A tailings dam to burst, and if anyone should be held responsible for the deaths of 17 people. The inquiry looked at eyewitness accounts, weather and hydrological data, laboratory and in-situ tailings testing, satellite imagery, and overtopping studies using a scale model. As the inquiry began to wrap up close to a year after the incident, one thing had become clear. There was definitely negligence behind the disaster. It hadn't been the only contributing factor, but it could not be ignored. Essentially, the inquiry found that if the dam had not been exceeding the recommended freeboard level at the time of the rain, and if Harmony had not continued to use the dam after they'd been advised not to, the dam wall would likely not have broken. While insurances would later allow the event to be classed as an act of God because the excessive rains had contributed to the overflow, from a position of culpability, the negligence of Fraser Alexander and Harmony Gold had been instrumental. If the dam had still had the one-metre allowance it had in 1993, even the freak rains that fell that night would not have caused a wall rupture. This inquiry would also mark the first time in South African history that satellite images were used as evidence in court which showed how the dam had expanded since 1988 when images were first taken. In 1996, both Harmony Gold and Fraser Alexander, as legal entities under law, were found guilty of their roles in the disaster. Harmony Gold, as a legal entity, was found guilty of 17 counts of culpable homicide, and Fraser Alexander admitted negligence and was found guilty. Three employees from each firm who'd been responsible for the dam were also named in the criminal case. Those individuals were originally facing the culpable homicide charges too, but those charges were eventually withdrawn and they were found guilty of contravening the Minerals Act. Harmony Gold was fined 120,000 rand. A pittance of their profits for 1995 which were 56 million rand. Fraser Alexander was fined 150,000 rand. The individual employees on both sides were also required to pay fines. In total, justice for the 17 people who lost their lives equated to just over 15,000 rand per person.
Of course, that money didn't actually go to the fund set up for the survivors. It went to the state. Not a single person served a single day in jail for 17 cases of culpable homicide. On the upside, the incident did bring significant forced legislation changes to the industry. Suddenly, every town with a tailings dam in it wanted proof that they were not a merry sprite waiting to happen, and several regulations were amended, including how close a dam can be built to houses or vice versa, and also the allowable freeload level was increased. For the people of Mary Sprite, this was little solace. Although many were eventually able to claim from their insurances and rebuild their lives elsewhere, for people like Bram van Sale, who'd lost his wife, and Mrs. Pretorius, who'd lost her two-year-old daughter and her husband, insurance meant nothing. Although this would thankfully be the last disaster involving a tailings dam of this nature in South Africa, at least so far, it would not be the last time a tailings dam would almost wipe out an unsuspecting community across the world. There are an estimated 3,500 active tailings dams around the world, and it's estimated that there will be at least three to five major failures of these dams every year. Many of these dams across the world are hidden, and communities living around them don't even know they're there until it's too late. These dams are often on mine property, which is guarded, but just meters away are homes and communities which are not on mine ground, but they are in the direct path of the sludge that could break out from that dam at any minute. Most recently, the Brumadino Dam in Brazil experienced a catastrophic failure on the 25th of January 2019. As many as 134 people were killed. Just four years before that, also in Brazil, the Bento Rodriguez Tailings Dam burst on the 5th of November 2015, killing 19 people with 60 million cubic metres of iron ore waste released into bodies of water around the dam, it's considered the worst environmental disaster in Brazil's history. For comparison, the Marysprate disaster released 600,000 cubic metres of material. And the list goes on. China, Zambia, Italy, Romania, Bulgaria, the United States, Canada... Wales, Chile, and many more. And in the disasters where humans did not lose their lives immediately, the damage to the environment was immense. The Romanian dam failing caused so much radioactive material to leak into the water supply that it was considered the second worst nuclear disaster in European history, only after Chernobyl. But there seems to be no other way to handle this waste. Well, I'm sure there are other ways, it's just not as cheap. So if we want to continue to have gold, iron, copper, and all the other things that are mined in this way, then we kind of just have to accept that tailings dams are going to exist. 
but they most certainly can be built and maintained better. Almost all the failures I've spoken about were as a direct result of human negligence. Only one or two were caused by things like earthquakes and the like. These are not natural disasters. They are man-made disasters. And the negligence that leads to these deaths is a crime. Many residents of Mary Sprade could not bring themselves to live in the town anymore as much as they loved the community. The dam wasn't going anywhere, so they were. The father's family looked for a new house, and although they found many houses in the area that were cheaper, they ultimately settled on one that was more expensive, simply because it was nowhere near a tailings dam. Although 28 years have passed since that terrifying night in Mary Sprite, for the people of the area, ghosts still linger. While some of the houses were rebuilt, others just had a foundation or a wall or two standing, and they were just left there. Nature took hold as residents rebuilt further away from the dam, and flowers and grass now grow through the remains of what were once bustling family homes filled with the laughter of children. The youngest victim of the disaster, a nine-month-old baby, would be turning 29 years old this year. He might have still been a resident of Mary Sprite himself. I have no doubt that the people whose negligence contributed to this disaster live with this daily. I think that perhaps in a crime like this, it's a bit different to talk about perpetrators when these were just ordinary people who certainly didn't purposefully take 17 lives. In reality, we don't know how much of the negligence was even true negligence on the part of those men and how much was just a result of the big corporate monster literally eating everything in its wake. The wheels turn slowly in corporations of that size. Perhaps the individual intentions were good, and it was the system they worked within that stopped their intentions from being taken seriously. For 17 people, though, the semantics don't matter. Christian Kukumur Matthijs Kukumur Jakobus Gaus Elsie van Heistien Johanne Klaasens Amos Mpitsi Karen van Sal Liska Pretorius Susanna Koch, Linda Kutzer, Margaret Ditebe, Selina Mokhotedi, Marian Moabi, Lorato Lisiana, Christina Fanikak, Mamuketsi Moreki, Elizabeth Jerling. Rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 85, The Mary Sprite Disaster. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. 
If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Lived Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. 